Well, good evening, everyone. Um, hopefully, on the way in, you, you got a copy of the, the notes page that'll help you follow along. Uh, this is now the, the fourth week in this series on the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. Uh, you can see at the top of the notes, uh, we have TULIP listed out and what those five points are. And uh, tonight, we're going to talk about unconditional election, which is the second one. Um, the past couple weeks, we were discussing total depravity. Um, and I define total depravity as uh, due to original sin, we are born without the ability to do any spiritual good because our corruption extends to every part of us. Uh, and we talked about how a key implication of that is um, not only that we don't have the ability to do you know, good works to earn our salvation, uh, but, but we don't even have the ability to repent and believe in Christ, uh, to receive the gospel. Um, I, I use the analogy of it, it's like if there's a drowning person and you come and throw them a buoy and you call out, grab onto the buoy, but then you realize they're, they're already dead. They're, they're unresponsive. That, that's how we are in our sin. Uh, that's what total depravity is telling us. We, we need more than the offer of the gospel. We need God to do something for us. We would never choose him unless he first chooses us. Uh, and so that brings us to the, the second point um, in these doctrines of grace, the U, unconditional election. Uh, and of course, this is talking about just that, about God choosing us. Um, now, if you have a Bible or if you grab a pew Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this is the, there's a lot of texts we could look at, um, but, but this is the one I want to focus on tonight. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I'll give you a moment just to, to turn there. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, so see right there in verse 4, it says, He, that is God the Father, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. Okay, so before Genesis 1, before God created the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, if you're a Christian, he already knew you, and chose you for salvation. He, he chose you to be holy and blameless before him. And in love, God predestined you for adoption to himself as a son. Um, you know, now, now sometimes I've, I've heard you know, Christians say things like, um, you know, do you believe in predestination? Do you believe in election? Or, or even, well, I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in election. And, you know, if I'm feeling snarky, I, I want to say something like, well, then you don't believe the Bible, <laughs> right? Be, because the word predestination is literally right there. Uh, and when we say things like God chose us before the foundation of the world and God predestined us for adoption as sons, you know, we're not communicating some theological interpretation. I mean, we're literally quoting 
the Bible. Uh, and, and, and the reason I, I make that point at the beginning is because when we come to this question of unconditional election and this debate between Calvinists and Arminians, uh, it's important to see that the debate is not over whether God elects. It's not even over when God elects. There's no debate. That's before the foundation of the world. Uh, the, the question is, why does God elect? Why does God choose some for salvation and not others? And um, so you can look down at that, that chart uh, I've provided. And the, the traditional Arminian view is, well, it, it's because God knows the future. Uh, so even before the foundation of the world, God foreknew which of us would choose him. And so which of us would hear the gospel and, and choose to respond in repentance and faith. And so then, based on that or conditioned on that, God elects us. Uh, and so that's why, in contrast with unconditional election, uh, that view would be conditional election. It's conditioned on our foreseen faith, our response to the gospel. Um, now, I think one of the problems with that view uh, is that it's, it, it's actually really hard to square with Ephesians 1. Um, first of all, when you, when you read through Ephesians 1, it, it doesn't say anything about foreknowledge. Um, so, so you're having to sort of import that concept to try to slide that in here when, when it's not there in the text. So that's, that's sort of challenge number one. Number two, you have to explain why, why does Paul bother to say that God chose us before the foundation of the world? Like, wh- why is that significant? Why does Paul bring it up? Right? Because it's, it's pretty weird and unnatural to conclude, well, if God chose me before I even existed, so it must have been based on something in me. <laughs> Right, I mean, just the natural way to interpret what Paul is getting at is he's saying he chose us before the foundation of the world to, to try to make totally obvious and drive home the point, it wasn't based on you. That, that, that's the, the natural reading. And then, and then a third challenge is um, you have to explain why Paul expects this doctrine of election to make us burst forth in praise to God. Right, the whole context of this, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so if, if election is God actively choosing us and purposing to save us, well then, well, it, it makes a lot of sense why we would praise God that he chose us before the foundation of the world. But on this traditional Arminian view, if election is, you know, God simply responding to our foreseen faith by choosing to bestow on us all the, the blessings, the other blessings of salvation, like you know, justification and adoption and sanctification and, and so on. Well, what is the blessing of election contributing that all those other things aren't? You know, I think on that view, it, 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 it kind of vacates the, this blessing of election down to Something that's really not adding anything more. And so it's hard to make sense of why is this something Paul wants to emphasize? Why is this the first thing that comes to Paul's mind when he's urging the Ephesian church to join him in blessing the name of God because of the glory of salvation? Um, so I, I think all those would be reasons that this traditional Arminian view really struggles to make sense 
of Ephesians chapter 1. And that's part of why I've included two other non-reformed views there in that chart uh, that, that tend to recognize this problem with the traditional Armenian view and while not adopting the reformed view, come up with different ways of thinking about election. Uh, now, the first of those, so number two in your chart, is I've labeled corporate election. Uh, and, and this is just a variant within Arminianism. Okay, so, so these are people that are, you can be totally Arminian, but just the way they're going to talk about election is going to be different than the traditional Armenian approach. And, and so this view is, is basically going to say that election takes place only at the group level. Um, so it's, it's, it's corporate. And, and I think, you know, most of us, even as reform, we, we could say, well, yeah, there's a corporate aspect in election. That's not what's novel. But, but they want to say there's not an individual aspect. That when it comes to God choosing us before the foundation of the world, well, it's not talking about God choosing me and you and other individuals. It's talking about God having elected Christ and God having elected the church as the group of all who would be in Christ and therefore you and I as individuals are elect or predestined based on whether or not we're in that group. Uh, so sort of a metaphor or, or way I've heard this described would be if, if you picture it like a ship with Christ as the captain. And this is a ship that, you know, set sail, you know, before the foundation of the world, and it has been predestined for salvation. Well, then, you and I as individuals, if we're on board the ship by faith in Christ, well, now we're sort of on the ship that's been predestined for salvation from before the foundation of the world. But it's only insofar as we are by faith on the ship. And if we apostatize, well, then you're off the ship. And you're not predestined anymore. So it's not talking about the, you know, you as an individual having been chosen by God in some way. Uh, they would say, no, what Ephesians 1 is talking about is it's trying to comfort us that, look, if we're in Christ, then we're on board a ship that is certainly headed for salvation. And so we can have this great confidence that as long as we continue trusting in Christ, we will make it there in the end. Um, in, in the words of one proponent, he says, Ephesians 1 is not about God predetermining which individuals will be in Christ. This passage is about God predetermining the spiritual blessings for those who are in Christ through believing the word of truth. Okay, so try to shift it. It's not about who is going to be in Christ, but the predetermined blessings for those who are in Christ. Now, I, I, I see, I think there's a number of problems with that, and we, we could go through Ephesians 1 and, and, and you know, really try to deal with it that way. Um, in the interest of time, I want to kind of jump right to what I see as a more obvious critique of this, um, which would be passages like in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Uh, it, it says of, of Paul's preaching, how you know, he's, he was preaching, and then he turns to the Gentiles, and he's preaching to them, and it says... And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, so these Gentile hearers hear Paul's preaching. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, so I think it's pretty clear there. There's, there's individual people who were appointed to eternal life. And in fact, they were already appointed to eternal life 
before they even believed, because it was because they were appointed to eternal life, they were the ones who believed. Uh, so I think that's one of the places where it's really, it just doesn't work to try to reduce election to this group level only. Uh, there, there seems to clearly be an individual component to it. So that's one of the reasons I don't think it works to come to Ephesians 1 and try to read it the way those proponents want to. Now, the other non-reformed alternative to the traditional Arminian view is called Molinism. Um, and, and this one is not just a variant within Arminianism. Molinism is kind of its own system that, that has its own five points. Um, it's, it's sometimes touted as this middle way between Arminianism and Calvinism, and especially its proponents will kind of want to convince you, well, well this preserves the best of both worlds. And so I'm bringing it up in part because you might meet someone that's, oh, no, there's this middle way that, that you know, is, is so much better than both. Um, and, and basically, the, the Molinist is going to agree with the Calvinist over against the corporate election view that election is personal and individual. Okay, so, so they're going to agree, yeah, you can't just reduce it to only being corporate. The Molinist is also going to agree with the Calvinist over against the traditional Arminian view that election, that, that, that that view doesn't work from Ephesians 1 because there has to be some sense in which God choosing us precedes us choosing God. If God chooses us before the foundation of the world, it has to be saying God is taking initiative. God's choice comes first. So they're going to agree with that. But the Molinist is going to agree with the Arminians over against the Calvinists that at the end of the day, the reason why God doesn't choose everybody, um, comes back to free will. You know, it, it, it's kind of the assumption, well, of course God would choose everyone if he could, but he doesn't want to interfere with our free will. And so in order to give us free will, God sort of can't save everybody. Uh, that there, it, election is limited because of us and our resistance, our free will. So, so that's where the... the Molinus is really more like the Arminian at the end of the day because that's what they want to hold to, even while agreeing with the Calvinists on these other points. So, so how does the Molinus kind of put this together? Well, I'll, try to, I'll attempt to sort of explain the thought process. Um, like the traditional Arminian, the Molinus is going to say, well, well, God foreknew who was going to choose him when he created the world. Okay, so he makes the world. God already knows which of us is going to freely choose to believe which of us isn't. But the Molinist is going to say, wait a second, God knows more than that. Because God also knew if he had made a slightly different world, who would have chosen? Or if he made a different world, who would have chosen? In fact, God knows all of the possible worlds he possibly could have created, and he knows exactly which of us would have chosen him in each one of all those possible worlds. And so what the Molinist is going to say is, you know, God also made a choice to choose to actualize this particular world. Now, why does God do that? It, it might depend on which Molinist you talk to. A lot of times it's something like, well, presumably th this, was the, this was the world where the highest percentage of people became Christians. <laughs> you know, surely that would be what God would want to optimize, right? He, they have to pick something. But, but the idea is that by God choosing to create this world, 
Well, he chose you because this is the world, this is a world where you chose him. Because surely there are other worlds God could have chosen where you didn't choose Christ. And so that becomes the way by which they're going to read Ephesians 1 and say, look, yeah, God chose us before the foundation of the world by choosing to create this kind of world, this particular world where you chose Christ. And so in in the words of one of their proponents, William Lane Craig, he says, it is up to God whether we find ourselves in a world in which we are predestined, but it is up to us whether we are predestined in the world in which we find ourselves. Now, if it's not already obvious, um, you know, maybe, maybe you can see why this, this view tends to appeal to philosophers. Um, some, some of you, might, your head might be spinning. Um, you know, this is more confusing. Um, and and there's, there's a lot of specifics. You know, if we had unlimited time, it would be interesting and fun to get into all the details about this. Um, but, but let me just try to give a very general, high-level assessment about Molinism, and would be glad to talk to you more about it offline. Um, I personally think this is probably the weakest view exegetically. Be- because I, I don't think there are texts of Scripture that you can just point to and positively build this from. I, I, I think this is more like a philosophical construct that we bring from outside the Bible. And then it's sort of attractive because, it, you know, especially if you're a philosopher type, it, it, it kind of gives you ways to harmonize some difficult passages. But I think it often lacks sensitivity to, like, the passage itself. It's hard to kind of make the case, okay, this is why, this is what Paul meant <laughs> when he wrote this. Um, and so that's where I, I think it, it, it really is kind of weak exegetically, um, and, and I, don't, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1. It, it's not just that God kind of had to pick from this range of options of which world would work. In fact, if, if you look ahead to, to verse 11, in Ephesians 1, verse 11, you know, notice how it talks about, you know, God is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. It's not just that this was the world where everything kind of worked out the best. This is the world that God is working all things together according to the counsel of his will, bringing things to pass exactly how he purposes, exactly how he intends to do it. Um, So the the Moldus of you almost has something in common with deism. It's almost like God is sort of the master, like, sets things up, and then they play out a certain way. Where I think the biblical view is, no, God is much more active. He's working this world together according to the counsel of his will. Well, that brings us now finally to the the reform view. So again, why does God choose some for salvation from before the foundation of the world? And the answer the Reformed view gives is, well, it's, it's unconditional with respect to us. It, it's not based on our faith, that, that God foresaw that we would choose him. It's not based on our works. It, it's not based on what we do. It's based ultimately and solely on the free and sovereign will of God and for God's own glory. 
And, and as we think about that, look again at Ephesians 1, and especially the end of verses five, at verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. Because right after Paul talks, says, Blessed be this God who has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. This God who in love has predestined us for adoption as sons to himself through Christ. I think he gives the reason why. He says, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. Right, so in other words, why, why does God choose us? Well, it's, it's not according to the purpose of our wills. It's not because we chose him. Paul says it was according to the purpose of his will. God chose us because he wanted to choose us. He chose us so that his purpose, according to election, might stand. And, and what is that purpose? Well, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Right? In other words, God's purpose is so that we might see the glory of his grace and praise him for it. He chooses who he does for his own glory and to display the beauty and magnificence of his grace. And and that means sometimes God chooses the very worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, like Paul, who's, who's actively trying to kill Christians. And then Paul can say, why does God choose me as the chief? Well, it was to, so that I would be an example of his perfect patience for all who believe. You know, other times we see God choosing to save someone like Cornelius, uh, a man who seemed to have been relatively upright, a God-fearing man, one who prayed often, perhaps praying that, that God would, would send someone to show him the way of salvation. And then God sends Peter to come and preach the gospel so this man can be saved. And, and I think it's showing us that he is a God who, who rescues the poor and needy who calls out to him. Uh, in Romans 11, it, Paul talks about God saving Jews and, and how God is faithful to preserve a remnant according to grace. That even people who had been so unfaithful, well, will God save some of them? And then we think about God choosing to save Gentiles. You know, so, so the wideness of his mercy might be shown to us and, and we can see that God is making his name great among all nations. But at the end of the day, we can't say specifically why God chooses to save this individual and not that individual. That's why we say it's unconditional. But what we can say is that God saves whomever he does for his own glory and to display the beauty of his grace. I think that's the, just the straightforward thing that Ephesians 1 is teaching us. Uh, if we'd had time, I, I would love to, to turn to Romans 9, and Paul really grapples with objections to that and makes this case there, I think, even more developed. But, but I'd argue that, that those who resist this idea that election is unconditional, um, I, I'd argue that ultimately they, they do so not really motivated just by a plain reading of the text, but, but really because there, there, there's some objection to it, right? There, there's something else that's making us uncomfortable with that. And, you know, the, I, I think there are legitimate 
questions to address. You know, it, it is a, a hard question. You know, wh- why does God create people that are not saved? And, and if God is sovereign and, and he has the ability to just override our rejection of him and, and save us, why doesn't he? I mean, th- these are legitimate questions. And, you know, if you're wrestling with that, I, I would encourage you, especially Romans 9, I think is particularly helpful to turn to and read. And, you know, th- these are good conversations for us to have. But, but I want to suggest to you that, you know, at the end of the day, the more you and I grow to trust the Lord, the more comforting it is to know that our eternal salvation and the eternal salvation of others is ultimately in his hands, not ours. I mean, to, to think that God chose us before the foundation of the world. That, that God's love for you didn't originate in, in the past 20, 30, 50, 80 years of your life when, when, when you made certain decisions or you chose certain things or you did this or you did that. God's love for you, his, his purpose to save you, originated before the foundation of the world. And what, what amazing security, what amazing comfort. And, and if we trust the Lord, it, that, that's, that's where we rest on his goodness. Even when we look out and, and, and know that there are some who are not saved. And we know that he is a God who is just. And at the same time, he's a God who loves even people like that far more than we do. And so even though we can't explain all the whys, we can rest in trusting him. And I think we should be able to find comfort knowing that salvation is in God's hands, not ours. And then also, I think the more we we understand our own sin, and and we just realize how deceptive and self-deceptive and hard our hearts have been and can be, the more clearly we, we see that, that we would never have chosen Christ had he not chosen us. Um, I, I want to read uh, the, the words of a hymn that, that we sing in this church on occasion. It says, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me, you cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me, that I should live in you. Unless your grace had called me and taught my darkened mind, the world would have enthralled me. To your glories I'd be blind. My heart knows none above you, for your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. I think that's well said. Um, well, we have just a, a, a couple minutes to, to entertain questions on this. I know we won't get to all of them, but, but I just want to give an opportunity for anyone who has a, a sort of a burning question uh, before we close. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know who first articulated that. I know there's a guy, Brian Abaschiano. I'm probably butchering his last name, who's a big kind of proponent. Uh, There's a guy named Leighton Flowers that pops up a lot, like he's just constantly pumping out videos anti-Calvinism. But he he also takes that view, so probably more people stumbled across him. Um, But those would be a couple names that I'd be familiar with.
Well, I, I mean, I, I think the, it, it is true. Like, there, I think the scripture can talk about the church, right, as sort of the people of God collectively. So, you know, I, I, I think there's room to kind of think in those terms. But um, I do want to emphasize that election, I mean, is personal and individual, um, that, that God chooses us as individuals for salvation. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, off the cuff, I, I feel like John Piper has been helpful there in, in, in talking about really what's the most loving thing God could do. And, and if he himself is the, the sort of the greatest gift and seeing his glory is actually the best thing he can give to us, well, there's not really like a contradiction. It's not like God seeking his glory is like to our detriment, but actually you know, coincides with our greatest good. Um, so I, I think that point, I mean, he articulates it much better than, than I can on the fly, but that, that's sort of an initial thought. Yeah. You mean just like the, the doctrines of grace in general? I, you know, it, it's one of those that, that can really fall anywhere on the spectrum. I mean, I, I, think, I think they should be kind of in the secondary to tertiary kind of range. Um, I, and, and I think there, there's, there's lots of room, I mean, even within this church, like I made a big point at the beginning, we, we don't all have to agree. And so in that point, it's, it's tertiary. Um, I, I think there, you know, there are those that kind of beneath... <laughs> the difference is, is sort of a heart posture that, you know, can be much more problematic, right? If, 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 my, if I'm clinging to, I chose Christ because, you know, I contributed to my salvation. And, and these people out there are lost because, you know, they're, they're just foolish. They're not as smart as me. Well, that's pretty concerning. Whereas there's somebody that may not agree, you know, they, they don't subscribe to unconditional election, but it's more kind of driven by this, um, you know, concern for, as, as we're thinking through, like, but, but I want to make sure that we're, we're preaching the gospel to lost people, you know? And so there can be kind of a good desire that even though I kind of think, well, I don't, I don't think that contradicts this, but, but I can see how, like, that is a very biblical, you know, godly desire to want to uphold and so if that's the reason we disagree like that feels like a much less important <laughs> issue whereas you know when it comes to the point of people saying look if you believe this then you're making god worse than the devil kind of rhetoric that starts to feel much more significant so yeah well initial time i'll talk to, let's let's talk after and um let's go ahead and pray Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can uh, meet together and, and talk about issues like this. Um, Lord, we praise you for your grace, that, that you freely, unconditionally, sovereignly choose to save us.
Lord, I pray that as we grapple with this, um, it, even, even in things we don't fully understand, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stir up consternation and frustration or doubt, but, but Lord, it would stir up worship and praise. Uh, that, that with Paul, we would, say, we would be able to say, Blessed be you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, even as you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.